0: Let us pray. Father, I grant you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word today. May you make us into more into the likeness of your son as we listen to your revelation. I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. A major theme that runs through all of our readings for this Sunday is God's ability to do the impossible, the miraculous, on behalf of His people. And indeed, not that He is simply able to do the impossible, but that our only hope rests in His doing so. We have the story of Gideon, in which God uses 300 men with lamps and pots to defeat Midian, as a testament to, that only his power is able to set his people free. We have the story of Jesus telling Peter to cast his nets on the other side to bring in an impossible haul of fish, which leads to Peter and James and John's call and the promise that they will at some point become fishers of men, they will catch men, which is God's promise of the spread of his salvation throughout the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have Paul's statement of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is a great miracle, a great impossibility, which brings salvation. All of these seemingly impossible things God does on behalf of His people. A sub-theme, especially in the, the three readings that we have, the um, Old Testament gospel and New Testament, is that God does all of these things in spite of the timidity and indeed in spite of the disbelief of the people involved in the story. Peter puts in his net on the other side. That's an act of faith. But he does so saying, done this all night, Jesus. It's not going to work. I'll do it. But we're not going to get anything. And he does it, and he gets the hole, and he says, "Jesus, forgive me." Paul, in his writing about the resurrection, talks about its effect, and he says that that Christ rose from the dead, and he appeared to all these people, and last of all, he appeared to me, someone who was defying him, someone who was persecuting his people. Someone who did not believe in him. And he is using me to bring the story of the gospel to the Gentiles. We'll talk about Gideon in a moment. But this theme and sub-theme of God doing the impossible on behalf of his people and using deeply flawed people, people who don't even quite believe in what he's doing, represent a common aspect of how the story of redemption moves throughout the Bible. There is an overarching narrative of God's work of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the broad theme, the broad story of the entire Bible. And then there are the individual stories of how God brings this grand movement of grace to bear upon unique individuals along the way. And they are often people who are indeed deeply flawed. The book of Judges, on the whole, is a good example of this. There is the overarching story of people who are without any guidance, any governmental authority. They have no king. Constantly we are told this. They have no king, and therefore they do whatever they want to do. And the grand theme, the narrative is the the awfulness that comes from this sort of anarchy and the move towards a davidic kingdom and through you had looking back at the whole grand scheme of the bible through the davidic kingdom to the kingdom of the son of david jesus who comes and establishes his kingdom this is the grand overarching story That we find. But along the way, there are the individual stories of God bringing deliverance to his people at a particular place and time through increasingly throughout the book, increasingly flawed individuals. The story of Gideon is one of the most fascinating stories, at least I think it's one of the most fascinating pieces of narrative in the Old Testament and in the book of uh, Judges. Let's remember the story. At this point, Israel is oppressed by the Midianites. And the Midianites are not uh, a landed people. Uh, Not like the Philistines who have cities. They are more a nomadic uh, tribe of people who do not sow and harvest. Rather, they are a warlike people. And so they wait for Israel to do their work for them. And then they come in at harvest time, takes their crops and leave Israel with nothing. And Gideon, we find then, at the time of harvest, is in hiding, threshing wheat for his family. And the messenger of God comes to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now this statement seems hardly believable. So unbelievable, we suspect that it's dripping with sarcasm. Gideon doesn't believe it. Gideon says, if God is with us, why am I hiding, threshing my wheat? Why are we oppressed by Midian? That's silly. But it's not the part of that statement of the Lord is with you that the reader finds most unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's the almighty man of valor part that's hard to swallow. And it's not unreasonable to hear this said, at the very least with a chuckle, if not a sneer of sarcasm. Our disbelief in Gideon's being a mighty man of valor doesn't necessarily come from what we've already seen. Sometimes I hear it said he's he's cowardly for hiding, threshing his wheat. I don't necessarily think he needs to advertise the fact that he's threshing his wheat, trying to get his family food, goading on the Midianites to come and get him as he threshes his wheat. No, but what follows describes, the entire story describes a man who hardly fits our idea of a mighty man of valor. He hardly wants anything to do with the idea of him being a person who saves Israel. He says, you're going to be the person who saves Israel, the messenger says. And Gideon says, well, that's silly. I am from the poorest, the weakest family of Manasseh, and I'm the youngest of this family. Now, it's very common when God calls people in the Old Testament for that person to be hesitant that person to say, no, 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 not me. Moses did it. Last week, Father Phil talked about Jeremiah doing it, saying, no, I'm too young. It's very common for this to be the response. But Gideon's response is not just just one of humility. He's also a bit dishonest. We see just a few verses later, when given a task, Gideon chooses out ten of his servants. Hardly something that the poorest family In Manasseh would be able to do, having ten of his servants help him with a task. And then just after that, after he's done this feat, we'll talk about it in a second, his father defends him against the whole town, defies the whole town. Hardly the action of a very weak family. So Gideon's a bit dishonest in his response to the messenger. And the messenger doesn't bite. He reiterates that God is with you and he will use you to defeat Midian. And so Gideon does now what will a thing that will define him throughout the narrative. He does this is the first time he does it, but he does it constantly. He asks for a sign. Give me a sign. Right? And so he sets a meal before the messenger. The messenger touches the, the food, it bursts into flame, and then the messenger disappears. God comes to him and this is alright, the first task I'm going to need you to do is I'm going to, go, I'm going to tell you to go into town, your town in Israel, and pull down a statue of Baal. Now usually, in the Old Testament, when God commands His servant to do this, this is done openly, in defiance of the people's idolatry. Sometimes done before the king. The prophet goes before the king and says, this, Idol is coming down. We defy your idolatry. Not Gideon. The Bible says Gideon's afraid. So he sneaks in at night when no one's watching. Pulls it down and gets out of town. And the next morning, when the people are upset, it's not Gideon who defies them. It's Gideon's dad. Well, Midian invades and the Bible says Gideon is filled with the Spirit and he blows the trumpet and summons all of Israel to war. And then immediately he runs back and says, God, you've got to give me a sign. This is what you want us to do. Not just one, but two signs, right? Put the fleece out. And if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, I know it's, know it's your will. It happens. Next morning, I'm putting it back out. And the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. But I know it's your will. Now, I have, and, and probably you have heard this as well. This preached as a, uh, a story about how to discern God's will. The fact that God wants to make His will clear to His people. It known and you can go and you can get clear direction from God as to His will. I would suggest that that is not the question at hand here. The question is not how to discern God's will. The question in this narrative is, will Gideon ever just do what he's told to do? Will he ever just trust God and obey? So 32,000 men gather to fight. And God says that to show that it is God who saves, not Gideon and the people... 32,000 is too many. He's going to whittle that number down. And the first test is clearly, I think, directed at Gideon's fear and hesitancy because God says, whoever is afraid and trembling, go back home. And 22,000 men go back. And quite frankly, given the narrative, one expects Gideon to be right at the front, leading them back home. But he doesn't. He stays. But 10,000 is still too many, so God whittles it down to 300 and says, this is the group that you're going to take to defeat Midian. So God comes once again to Gideon and says, all right, Gideon, it is time for you to go down to face the Midianites. And then he says this, but if you're afraid then you can go down with your servant first, sneak into the camp, sneak down near the camp, and I'll give you another sign. Now, there are several responses that could come to this. One one might hope and think that Gideon would be able to say, God, you've given me enough signs. I trust you. I don't need that extra sign. I'm going to go down with the 300 now to face and see what you will do to deliver your people. That would be a good response. There's another response that I think many of us would do in our pride to say, afraid? Me? Afraid? God, we're good. I'm just going to go check out that supply of lethal pots we've got over there. We're good to go. Don't accuse me of being afraid. What does Gideon do? he grabs that servant and sneaks down to the camp. He's afraid. He wants that extra sign, the fourth one now. And God gives it to him. And finally, the 300 men armed with pots and lamps and trumpets go down, cause confusion and self-destruction in the Midian camp and Israel is freed. It's really quite a story. That we have. And I want to point out just a couple of things. There are so many, this is like, the story is so layered. So many things we could point out from this. I just want to point out a couple things. First is that human weakness will not prevent God from accomplishing his goals. The movement of the grand arc of God's salvation of his people. Is certain it will not be defeated by our weakness, by our disbelief, by our fearfulness. God will do what He needs to do. He will accomplish His ends, His goals. Whether or not we become great people of faith or not. He's not dependent on us. This is a great relief to some of us who think that it rests on our shoulders that I have to make it happen by my strength. It is a great relief to us who grew up in youth groups, sitting around campfires, and hearing speakers say to us, you young people, you are going to go out and change the world. And our response is, me? Really? And then look around the rest of the campfire and say, then? Dear God, no. And feel the weight of, I've got to do it. If God's going to build His kingdom in the world, it's up to me to do it. I've got to do it. The weight of the world rests on my shoulders. No, it doesn't. God will accomplish His goals. And that's a great relief to us, to some of us. To some of us, it's a great disappointment. Those of us who want to be the savior of the world, who want God to be dependent upon them, to those who sit around the campfire and hear, you're going to change the world. You say, you better know I am. I'm going to do it. It's going to be me. And God's going to be grateful. Because he needs me. No, he doesn't. He will accomplish his goals, the broad narrative of bringing salvation to the world. And he invites flawed characters into his work to be a part of it. These individual stories, he invites us and he honors us by allowing us to participate. But it's not us. Not dependent on us. I have said this before, there are ministries out there that target the elite of society, the powerful, the movers and shakers of society. And I'm happy for these ministries if they do so, because these people are people in need with deep spiritual needs who need to hear and know the gospel and love of God. That's a good thing. They're people in need. But I have a problem with it if the motivation is that we need to get these people on our side because this is what's needed for the the kingdom of God to grow. We need these people. They're more valuable to God. God can't do it without having the the real power brokers of the world on His side. This is how we grow and become the kingdom of God. That is a very human way of building the kingdom of God. Very often, it's not God's way. He doesn't need us. He invites us in, asks us to help and says, I will use you in spite of all of your flaws. Now, this is not to say that God wants His people to remain weak and fearful and distrustful. It's not that He looks at Peter and says, oh, you know, you didn't believe me. That's great. Good job. Next time when I tell you to throw the net on, I want you to respond the same way in disbelief. No, he wants Peter to get to the point where he says, when when Jesus says, cast your net on the other side, Peter says, you're going to bring a great haul of fish, aren't you? I'm going to cast my net over there expecting you to do something great. He wants Peter to grow up to that, and Peter does. And he wants his people to grow in faith, grow towards perfection. But our current weakness does not derail His plan. Both yours and those around you. I'm not just talking to you, think about those around you. There are times we get so discouraged when we look around us and see the weakness of the body of Christ and say, this is just not going to work. God's plan is not going to come to fruition. It will. It will even with the weakness of his body on earth. Secondly, God's gifting comes with his calling. When the messenger calls Gideon a mighty man of valor, I don't think he was speaking of Gideon as he sat there hiding in the winepress. At that moment, there is a mighty man of valor. And though it may be somewhat humorous, I don't necessarily think it's biting sarcasm. Rather, it is God speaking truth into Gideon. This is what you will be. In my strength, you will be valorous and you will set my people free. He is ordaining Gideon to valorous action. You will be a mighty man of valor and I will be with you because I will be with you. Now, we might argue that it didn't work. He says you're a mighty man of valor and there is very, well, there's a lot of evidence he wasn't. What we might think of as being super brave, extremely valorous man. Well, I would say that in the end, he does lead 300 men with pots and pitchers and trumpets to defeat the army of Midian. And maybe he didn't go in it with what we might say, go about it, and what we say might be the the greatest display of valor and bravery. But he accomplished the task. Sometimes we think God's gifting or empowerment for a task means turning us into a superhero. Making us become an expert in the field he's called us into. That when he calls Gideon to be a mighty man of valor, he means turning him to some sort of rip-roaring Greek hero to take on the world. But I suspect that often God's gifting, the pouring out of His grace upon us, just makes us competent to do the task at hand. Makes us just capable of doing what He tells us to do. Perhaps for Gideon, each halting, hesitant, overcautious, fearful step was indeed a great feat of valor. That was an incredible gift of bravery that he was pouring out upon him just to get him to take the halting, fearful steps that he took. Perhaps it was as great a feat of valor as Achilles striding towards Troy with every intent to destroy every hero that came out of against him. Those ideals we have of bravery and, and valor. God gives us grace when we need it and in the amount we need to accomplish the task he gives us to do. One of the more famous stories from Corey ten Boom is a story from her childhood when she was a little girl. And she came in contact with death of a friend. And somehow in her mind, she transferred that to the death of her father. And she went to her father and says, Father, I don't think I could have the strength to bear your dying. You're leaving. I can't do that. I'm not strong enough for that to happen. And her father tells her, Tells her, asks her, says, Corey, when you and I take a train to Amsterdam. When do I give you the ticket to get on the train? She says, you give it to me right before we get on the train. He says, that's right. I don't give it to you earlier than you need it. When you need it, I give it to you. So it is often with God's gifting. He gives it to us when we need it and in the amount of which we need it. So we trust Him when that time comes and I need to be that mighty man or woman of valor or whatever it is else we need to be. God, You're going to give it to me. And maybe it won't be in world uh, mind-shattering amounts. Maybe it'll be just enough to take that one next step. But that is such an outpouring of your grace. Sometimes it is victory just being able to take that next step. And that's evidence of God's grace. An outpouring of His love and goodness upon you. So God does. God will accomplish His goals. And He gives His grace, His gifting as it is needed to us To bring about the grand story of His redemption of mankind. And to help the struggling individual along the way in that story. The smaller stories within the grand overarching story. And so we give thanks to God that He has done that for Gideon. And He can do that. He does do that for us as He works to bring about the grand and glorious salvation through His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.